You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a Ph.D. holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. And welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. With me, your host, Katie Charlewood, history harlot and reader of books. If you are new here, consider this a warning. On this podcast, my language has been referred to as, um, colourful, shall we say? And as such, some people don't like that. And if you are one of those people who do not enjoy listening, or, you know, just find it unpleasant to hear swear words, um, you might want to exit stage left. Now for everybody left, welcome! Welcome one and all. I would like to formally apologise for my voice. I did a talk at the Dunfanaghy Workhouse for Heritage Week at the weekend and I discussed the history of storytelling because Ireland is a nation of storytellers. And, and it ran 20 minutes over because people were asking questions and I cannot give a short answer. So clearly I was too loud and talking too much. And my voice is kind of doing this now. So it feels kind of like vocal fry, but also not. So I kind of have to speak in this little bit of a higher register so that I don't hurt my throat. But it's fine. It's fine. Ah, uh, news, 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 news. Okay, so... The Trover Trip Secret History of Scotland Tour. So it's currently, the early bird price is 3247 I think. Math is not my strong point. So that's all from May 8th to 14th this year. So there's all the usual stuff. There's accommodation covered, four cities, six breakfasts, two dinners, and 14 activities. And that's all covered by Trover Trip. Now, me being me, because I have to excel at everything and do better at everything, which is totally achievable, by the way, uh, I decided to add a few more bits. And I thought, to be nice, and because it's a high-ticket item. I mean, I know with the early bird price, you're saving like 200 bucks. And that's, would you call it now? Like that's, I think there's only like six of those left, actually. And then... And then it goes up to full price. So if you do want to come and you want to save $200, you might want to get on that. But I've got a fellow historian like coming to visit us in Edinburgh and tell us some spooky stories. I'm also personally, personally, the first 
five confirmed spots. I'm taken to a historical escape room. I know, I love an escape room. I do. And I think it's just going to be really fun. And I just want to treat some people. And like six is the maximum amount per room. So I thought, yeah, I'll treat the first five. Just seems like a nice thing to do. But yeah, uh, so that talk went well. Uh, the Trover trip's coming up May next year, 2024. And I'm heading to Edinburgh this weekend. So I'm flying in on the Saturday, heading back on the Monday. A flying visit, some might say. Because uh, I'm going to go see Ruben Kay's show, The Butcher's Back. I promised them I would go. And it's the last night of Fringe. So I thought, why not? get Lalde and go show some support and love. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, quit your jibber-jabber and fact me. In fact, you I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. Our sources are The Trail of Charles Langley, Esquire, FRCSI by Jay McLashen The Nina Guardian The Tipperary Vindicator The Freeman's Journal and, of course, the Doctor's Wife is Dead by Andrew Tierney. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then I'll begin. Trigger warning, we're going to be discussing um, violence, uh, domestic abuse and murder. Manslaughter? Murder. So if you do feel that these topics are going to be an issue or be triggering for you, I'm going to suggest you just don't listen to this episode. Just come, skip it. Skip away. So this all starts, actually, because I found a book called The Doctor's Wife is Dead by Andrew Tierney. And it was just an interesting looking book. I was on um, like a secondhand bookstore, just scouring the non-fiction section, as I do. And I found this book. Now, what I did is I like to cross-reference my sources. So that's what I did. Because, you know, you never know. You never know when something's going to be a bit exaggerated here and there and so I came across this book read it and first of all was mad that it wasn't an audiobook because this is such a good story you could play this as a courtroom drama like you could make this as a courtroom drama on tv like still said it back in the 1800s but this this is where the tv license money should be going rte make this this is, it's so good because it has the saltiest jury I have ever, ever, like, I have read many trail transcripts. Like, I, I, I kid you not, this is the saltiest jury I have ever met and they are brilliant and they just start pulling out all this stuff and they're so sarcastic all the way through and like they pull all these people up on their shit and it's such, it's such an interesting, like, tale and the manner in which it unfolds. Like, it, it's, it's wild. It's absolutely wild. And at the centre of this is a woman that so many people fail to protect. And her married name was Langley. But I am going to call her Poe because that was the name she was born with. And her husband was a fucking bastard. And so, let me tell you about the life and death of Ellen Poe. A woman whose story 
probably like so many others, was easily forgotten and dismissed. And you all know I don't usually discuss true crime like more than once a month. I usually try to avoid it. But this is so much more. Like to just be like, oh, it's a crime. Yeah, yeah, there's a bunch of fucking crimes that happen in this. But a woman, again, whose story, whose life was just whisked under a rug and she doesn't even have a headstone like there's no marker for her like her family her husband like everybody in her life not one person ensured she had a headstone which you know given the era was the least fucking thing you could do but i am jumping ahead of myself Because Ellen Poe, the doctor's wife, well, she's dead. And it's about to cause a scandal. Eleanor Poe, or Ellen, as she would be known, was born in 1791 in Donnybrook. Now, do we have a day or month? No, no, we have a year. She was born in 1791. Anything else? Not really sure, but 1791. That's, that's something. I mean, we know roughly when she was born. I guess that's good enough. Jesus. Because of course, why would we know the birthday of a woman? Even a woman from a respectable family, which the Poes were. So Ellen was the eighth of nine children, the penultimate child, second last. Um, her older siblings were, in chronological order, George, William, Francis, Martha, Anne, Marjorie, Thomas, and Marianne. Ellen was the child of William Parsons Poe and Francis Harden. And I know this is going to shock you all, gentle listener, but tragedy befell poor Ellen's childhood. So when she was only four years old, her mother Frances dies she passes away 1795 and well growing up in that sort of regency georgian era ellen as one of many daughters was expected to marry for well prospects really the concept of a love match not not really a thing and as a respectable lady she was expected to find a suitable husband however this This didn't quite happen, so as her other siblings moved and married off, Ellen did not. And until such times as Ellen got married, her father was responsible for her her upkeep, her well-being, her finances. And when her father dies in 1830, the responsibility, or the burden, as some might say, fell on her brothers because it was their duty then to support their spinster sister although I think at this point she's a Hasselback like she's gone past spinster onto Hassel nope Hasselback's a potato that that's a poor choice a thornback thornback not a Hasselback Hasselback potatoes are delicious thornbacks are um spinsters once they get past a certain age I don't know I I think I'm technically a thornback I think Hmm. 
Now, who precisely took responsibility for Ellen? Mm, we're not sure. But by 1831, Ellen was residing in Dublin. What? We don't know the details of a woman's life from the past? Shocked, I heard you say shocked. Yeah, so. Her brother Thomas, he's living out in Lucan, and her niece is over on Denzel Street. And then I think her sister's on Marion Square. So, like, there's a good few relatives that have moved from Tipperary and are now living in Dublin. So, she's probably, it's likely, the chances are she's living with one of them and she's sort of visiting and going around. Now, was she specifically looking for a husband? We don't know. But, well, she found one. Before Ellen's father had passed away, he had decreed that Ellen's dowry would be £500. So, whether he was alive or not alive, if she ever got married, her husband would receive £500. Which, by the way, was a fuck ton of money back then. So, that's that's a good incentive for some people to marry. I mean, it's not the best amount of money in the world, you know, especially for someone looking for, um, you know, a wealthy, a wealthy maiden. But if you're looking to marry into a prosperous family, a family of, you know, good repute, you know, you want, you want a, a good reputation. You want someone of prestige. Like if the prestige matters more than like the money, this is a good match. Now, unfortunately, um, for William, who becomes the head honcho upon um, the father's demise, is that he's not super great with money and he ends up having to move out of the family home and uh, into, well, other lodgings, which is probably the reason, actually, why Ellen wasn't with him and why he was not supporting her specifically. And I guess she was kind of fobbed off on other relatives. Like, it was their duty. I mean, by the time she's 39 and her father dies, like, she's already, like, out to pasture at that point. You know, as far as society is concerned. Because, for the most part, she's past child-pairing age. And, you know, that's just not optimum. But somehow... Some way, Ellen ends up crossing paths with a young doctor, a doctor Charles Langley. So Langley gets elected to the. Is it elected? He gets sent to the Nina dispensary in Tipperary in 1831. 1831? 1832? Um, fun fact um, I'm not good with dates. And you're thinking, geez, Katie, a historian who's not good with dates feels a bit ironic. <gasps> you're not wrong. So she meets this young, charismatic, handsome doctor um, who, and, well, and Nina. And see, and Nina in Tipperary, her brother-in-law is the Reverend Poe, who is also her cousin, her mother her mother? No. Her sister married her cousin. And I know what you're thinking. Ew. I know. I know. Incest? Still wrong. 
still weird, still disgusting. But for some strange reason, they were into it back then. You know, they didn't have an understanding of, of you know, the biological, like, issues that would occur from, you know, turning your family tree into a wreath. It was more the concept of keeping the bloodlines pure, which, again, not, not a thing, not a real thing, not good. You need diversity for, you know, a decent standard of living. But yeah, so the Reverend Poe is married to her older sister, Frances. And somehow, after coming into contact with Dr. Charles Langley, who is much younger than she is, within eight months of him having this position in the dispensary, they're married. Now, courtships were generally short back then anyway. You know, it would be eight weeks, a couple months, depending on how long they were hashing things out. Now, for for Charles, he is... In this marriage, it is, um... It, it's weird. It's peculiar. It's odd. Because Ellen is 40. She's 15 years older than, than Charles, Dr. Langley. Like, he's... He's 25. And he's marrying this woman who's much older than he is. Like... It's it's suspicious. I mean, she's from a prominent family. He's getting a wee bit of income from it. Which, you know, maybe he thought he would get more. Maybe he thought he would gain respectability. So, as a doctor in the area, Charles was... Dr Langley, he was working in the dispensary and he would do, like, thousands of visits. He would do house calls, right? Now, let me tell you about Dr Langley and how fucking unscrupulous this man was, right? He was a dick, to be clear. So not only was he being a doctor, doing his doctory stuff, but he felt like that was just a lot of hard work. He often complained about his job and having to go here and there and, you know, treat the sick, treat the poor. You know, he didn't like having to do that bit. So what he did is he decided to supplement his income by um, becoming a moneylender. And he does this for so long that he spends less time treating patients and more time, you know, collecting money. Like, to the point where he gets people arrested for not paying him, like, the two shillings that they owed him for whatever. Gets them sent in jail and makes them pay, like, 10 shillings to get out of it it's a whole whole thing like he even this is like shows you just how shady this motherfucker is is a couple comes to him looking to procure special medicine to induce an abortion and he says okay yeah you're gonna have to pay me like double that so they come back with double the money he takes the money from them and then gets the couple arrested. And like he would do this with certain stuff as well. He would promise such and such and make people pay over the odds for medical treatment. And this is a guy who, who ended up serving during a cholera epidemic, right? There was, well, there was a couple of them actually. And over the years as Tipperary was very, very dangerous actually, 
It was like a hotbed of activity. Because when Angorta Moor happens, the Irish famine, the blight, it forces a lot of people who were living out in rural communities into the more populated cities. And this is what caused a greater spread of these of these diseases. So cholera, dysentery, um, typhoid, tuberculosis, like these become rampant because you've got all these people living in less than hygienic cramped conditions. Like at one point it gets so bad that the workhouse, which is where people go when they have no other fucking choice, when they are skin and bone, people were leaving the workhouse because they were too worried about catching diseases. So now some of you don't know what the potato famine is, and I should probably explain that a wee bit. And the reason it's called, like, the potato famine, the reason it's called that is it's a way of sort of moving it and calling it a different name to make it seem less horrific. So in Ireland, it's called Ingortimore. Well, there was two. There was Ingortibug and Ingortimore. So there's the big hunger and the small hunger. Ingortimore is the big hunger. And that's because the entire nation was starving. Now, Ireland was able to grow other, like, foods. But Ireland was under British rule at the time. And there were these, like, trade laws, which effectively forced Ireland to export all of its decent grain, all of its decent vegetables, all of its decent, all of its decent foodstuffs. So that all gets exported so that Britain can use it or trade it or whatever. Because the blight that was affecting potatoes, it wasn't just happening in Ireland. It was happening all over Europe. But Ireland wasn't able to produce, or well, keep, retain, utilise the, the, the grain and foods that it had because it had to be exported. So what could have been resolved fairly easily wasn't and it was engineered really it was a yet another famine that was engineered and it fucking sucks but on top of this you had these mass evictions going on because people could earn more money by having cows on their land than having tenants and if a tenant missed you know a payment here or whatever and sometimes a landlord would just kick people out for the fun of it like Lord Leitrim was one who was known to be a particularly shitty person and people were just left they were kicked from their homes their families they would have no livelihoods they would be destitute they would have nowhere to go and all of these rural workers who had nowhere to go, who had no food, made the decision to up sticks and move to the city where they might have a better chance. Or at least somewhere more populated. And so these people start coming in and it gets worse and worse and worse. And it gets to the point with Dr Langley's money business 
that because he's spending so little time doing any fucking actual doctoring, or, I don't know, there's a word for that, medicalness, and because he's not doing that, like, they literally hold a commission to, like, deal with this, because he's not doing his fucking job. So he ends up being removed from the Nina dispensary, and he just goes full on tilt with his uh, money business. Well, I say that. He's there like two days a week um, and he has a dude working for him. So he's got that going on. But what he does is he actually has another job as like a coroner sort of. So he would be the person they bring in to give evidence about crimes. So if someone was beaten, he would have to explain the wounds and how it happened. Or if someone was murdered or poisoned, like... He would be the person that you'd bring in to, well, discuss it, to provide evidence, to be an expert witness. And he would do this on behalf of, well, the Crown. So he would do this and he would get paid handsomely for it. Not as handsomely as he would like, but he would get paid well. So between that and his money business, well, you know, he was doing okay for himself. And considering he'd managed to weasel his way in and become quite, quite chummy with the respected sort of patrons of society. You know, he was very good at fitting in. And like, while everyone else was starving, while people were struggling to have food and they were (laughs) eating dirt, people literally ate dirt. Like, we have it on record that they were so desperate for food, they're eating grass and dirt just to try and stay alive. But even during the famine, even during Angorta Moor, the people in the estates, in the big houses, they were having parties and feasts. Like, they were fine. I mean, some were, you know, working as land agents and trying to, like, scrimp pennies because their generational wealth was, you know, sort of dripping away but they were having a swell old time for the most part and weren't too concerned about the well-being of others around them which not great and the majority of this elite they happen to be protestant Uh, i'm not going to get into a whole sectarian thing here because there's just not enough time but yeah there was there was issues between catholicism and protestantism back in back in the day and this continued for, you know, a couple of hundred years. Some might even say it's still going on today. But yeah, that's that's generally what's going on with Charles. Now, Ellen. Ellen and, and Charles, the first nine months of their marriage... Everything seems to be going well for a bunch of newlyweds who had not really known each other before getting married in a society where, you know, respectability and prospects were far more important than love. However, it seemed that Dr. Charles Langley was not, you know, a level-headed, emotionally stable and secure person. Ah, I believe the medical term is shitbag? Yeah, okay. So he was known for having 
tantrums. He's 25 years old and he's having tantrums. And here's the thing, back in the day, you really should have, you know, matured quicker because, you know, all the shit that's going on around you. And this is from him being a doctor as well. So you would think he would have a, like, steady nerves. Like, he would be just tip-top and easily, easily maintained, you know? But he was quick to anger. And there were witnesses to this. Like, not long after they were married, I think within the first year, Ellen is on a pony. She's, you know, having a wee trot around. And for whatever reason, he physically pulls her from the pony by her hair and starts beating her. Like, in front of the servants. And like, she's 40, 41 at this point. And this young, strong man is beating the absolute shit out of her. Oh my God. And this abuse continues, like, from, like, nine months into the marriage all the way through to the the end of it. But he is physically beating her. And he does come to say later on that it's because she slept with two men before they got married. Like... In her 40 years on the earth, she had relations with men. Um, Even though he had had sexual relations with women. Double standard. Because she had sex with someone, clearly she was awful at the worst. I mean, she was 40. But here's the thing as well. Uh, Ellen never confirms this. Like, he tries to say that she signed a letter stating this. But there's no evidence of that. The letter doesn't exist. We've had no evidence of it. We have his word on it, but nothing else. And the two men that he says, they're men that would have been in her family's life and it's quite possible that this could have happened. It's possible that she had relations with them. It's possible that she was assaulted. Like there's no, there's no way to say what happened or what didn't happen. But either way, pulling someone off a horse and beating them, definitely not the answer. Like, it's not, that's not a solution to whatever your perceived problem is. And the mistreatment of Ellen, it continues over the years. Like, he resents being married to her and he makes sure that she knows it. So over the next 17 years, he makes things difficult for her. So her mother died of tuberculosis and she ends up contracting it as well at some point in her life. And because of this, it makes it makes things difficult for her, like eating. So over the course of her life, she ends up with digestive issues and bowel issues but throughout their marriage when they're still living together and they're still in the same bedroom or at least in the same part of the house like he is restricting her food and it it does not go unnoticed so because she has bowel issues and I don't know whether the issues are a result of like years of malnutrition or whether it's, you know, just exacerbated by it. 
So, and so for the next, was it 16 years? 15, 16 years. He is restricting her food. He is beating her. Like, something he does most often is he denies her eggs. Like, he refuses to give her eggs. I can only assume that Ellen quite enjoyed an egg. The eggs were easy for her to eat and digest and consume. But he would consistently deny her eggs and would ban staff from giving her eggs. Now, she was known for a while to go to neighbours and friends. She would show up at their house and ask them for food because she was hungry. And all she wanted was white bread and eggs. He refused to give her white bread. He would only give her brown bread, which not great if you have like bowel issues. And so she is visiting people up until the point where the doctor starts contacting the husbands and tells them to stop allowing their wives to feed his. He warns them not to let her cross your threshold. Do not let her into your house. And so unless the husband happened to not be home and it was safe, they would turn her away. Like the odd time they would sneak around and feed her. But they would they would have to send her away because this is the prominent doctor. He's well respected. He could fuck things up for you. And you have to think as well, this is a woman who was raised in a respectable family. She had pride. You know, begging, which is what she was doing, would have made her feel so low, so horrible, so worthless. And like, it showed a willingness to survive. So people who knew Ellen throughout her life and all we have is second-hand information. And the majority of people say that she was kind and well-mannered and considerate and and good to her husband. Like, she wanted to be a good wife. But it just seems he never really wanted her to be one. So, we're not sure when it started... But throughout their marriage, Dr. Langley starts shagging about, starts cheating on his wife. Now, the way that divorces worked at that time, and I've discussed this before, um, there's a whole episode on divorces throughout the ages. Basically, if a woman is, you know, commits infidelity, they can get divorced. Like a man can divorce her. But if a man commits infidelity, that's fine. You suck it up and you keep being married. Like that's like it it's it's bad for her to do but not for him. Again, double fucking standard. And throughout this, which is gonna add another layer of Tom fuckery to this, is that throughout this, his niece is living with them. So they're a childless couple, and his young niece, who lives with him, I think, since the age of three is living with him throughout this. And so any time that the servants would sneak her food or 
you know, help Ellen in any way. The kid would rat them out. Now, we don't know what kind of emotional manipulation and abuse she was already dealing with from Dr. Langley, her uncle. But, like, she was always trying to please him and she would always dob Ellen in and she would be fractious and even cruel. But, again, this was something she was conditioned to be and I don't think we should really lay blame on a fucking child who was dumped with her uncle who is an absolute bastard. So yeah. And also during this, he is bringing other women into the house. He is shagging maids and women of uh, ill repute, basically. Um, sex workers. He's bringing sex workers home and having a good old time. I hope at the very least he paid them fairly. But he would do it whether or not Ellen was in the house. He, this man, did not give a fuck, let me tell you. Now, about... And then in 1848, so one year after Black 47, like the worst year of of the famine, where like the, the highest amount of immigration happened, like it was it was bad. And a year later, Dr. Charles Langley starts spending time with his sort of niece, other niece, not not Franny, not not the, not the the young child, but Ellen's thirty-two-year-old niece. So she's younger than Dr. Langley by a good bit too. And so she is the youngest. No. That's like she is the last remaining unmarried daughter of the Reverend Poe, so Ellen's brother-in-law and sister Frances. And she is, well, being attempted to be courted by like one of the local like solicitors. But unfortunately, Anna, otherwise known as Nanny. For several months in 1848, begins an affair with her aunt's husband. So it starts off, you know, because they're spending a lot of time together anyway, because their families are so close, is that they would be spending time together going on romantic strolls, they would go on trips together, and... and... It was a little while into their time together that a law is being proposed to be changed. So it was seen as incest to marry like your your wife's niece or your wife's sister, right? That was, or like your wife's or your husband's brother, you know, your husband's nephew, things like that. Like that was seen as incest. Marrying your cousin, fine. Marrying someone who's not a blood relative. Uh, whatever so there's talk of this being of this being repealed right? and so somehow Ellen finds out about this this relationship and as such she goes to well one of the more prominent places in town and she tells the family of the situation 
and she goes to her brother-in-law and her sister and tells them of the situation. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And next thing you know, December 1848, he is trying to see, he's trying to see Anna. He goes up to visit her and he's like not very welcomed at the home. And Francis does not like this motherfucker anyway, right? Ellen's sister does not like this man, right? So clearly this has given her another feather in her cap because this is just another good reason to keep this arsehole away. Because he is ruining her sister's life and she can't do anything about it. But now he's got his sights on her daughter. Fuck no. But yeah, Anna basically sends a letter, a Dear John letter, effectively just telling him she wants nothing to do with him. She's done. She can't do this. It's awful. He's awful. End of discussion. And so, like, she says that she heard from her father, um, although... Charles does is he then starts contacting other relatives like his brother-in-law. So Ellen's sister Marianne, her's a husband, right? Nixon. She he contacts him and Nixon is literally giving him very clean advice on dissolution of a marriage, right? He's giving him very clear advice. And you'd think that he would be on his side, right? Or he would be on his you know, his his wife's sisters, his sister-in-law. That's the word. You'd think he'd be on her side. And it's not like he's doing anything untoward because he's technically just giving very clear legal advice and financial advice. But, mm, mm-hmm. but we're going to get back to that. So he starts telling people that, you know, she's going around spreading these rumours and saying that he's a cad and doing all this stuff and trying to ruin his reputation. Yada, 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 yada. Now, on top of this, at one point over the past couple years, he beats Ellen so badly that the doctor sends her away to stay with another prominent family while she heals, right? And 
because the way society was, it's all very hush, hush. It's kept under wraps, because of course it is. We can't have people questioning the gentry. Oh my goodness, I totally forgot. So when, so when Dr. Langley's mother died, she left him like £2,000 or something. Like it was a good chunk of change. So he really could afford to just leave doctoring and go do whatever the fuck he wanted. The coroner shit and of course the, uh, the, uh, the money lending. All the money lending. So yeah, skip forward to the point where this law might be coming into place or, you know, it could be a very, a very like reasonable option. It could be an option for him. He could marry Anna. But first, you know, his wife has to die or divorce him. One of those two options. He moves the maid and Franny out of the garret, which is like a loft sort of in the house. And he takes off the door of one of the rooms. So he moves Ellen out of, you know, a warm, decent room in the house to this awful room up in the the loft in the attic basically it's called the garret right so she's up there and she is forced to eat in her room now originally there's a door on it and it gets taken off like they say it's for her safety or whatever blah 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 so she's allowed to eat in there she's not supposed to eat in the parlor but the maid right she sneaks her into the parlour and feeds her down there. And she would sneak eggs up to her and other such things. But while well, she's, you know, now in a better room downstairs, Thomas Pound is moved upstairs. And he works for... And he works for Langley. And Thomas Pound, as it turns out, is an ex-convict. He'd been in prison, he'd been in jail... Um, for assault, like beating someone up. And I think, was it 47 or 48? 47. Because he was in for a year. And then he ends up employed by Dr. Langley. And now, Thomas Pound and Ellen Langley, or Ellen Poe, Ellen Langley Poe. No, Ellen Poe, Dr. Langley's a dick. So Poe, Poe, and Pound, they're forced to share one candle. And... Langley's like, I don't care if you go into my wife's room or not, because there's nothing to separate the rooms. And so this, if anyone heard of it, would just seem like impropriety central. Like, that's weird. So all of her good clothes, her silks, her, her, you know, her nice stuff, it's all taken from her. And she's left in, like, chemises and whatnot. Like, nightwear, effectively. Underwear. And so she is forced to live like that. Imagine the embarrassment. Imagine, imagine all of this is just to wear her down. And Thomas Pound is bringing her eggs too. And he's sneaking food up to her. And sometimes, because she's so cold, because she's frail, She's weak, she's ill. And the doctor only allows her to have one sheet on her bed. Nothing else. Nothing warmer, 
the more appropriate. Like the maid would like sneak up heat jars, right? Into the bed to try and warm it up. But once she was caught, they would be removed. And But she would keep trying it, right? And it got to the point where Franny, the niece, the young niece, his niece, the one he's not stupid, she reports this to her uncle and he makes sure that this doesn't happen anymore. So Thomas Pound would go in and he'd rub her feet and he'd cuddle her and keep her warm. And then something happens. Now we don't know what it is. Um, but, you know, Thomas Pound was known for having a way with the ladies. And he says something happened. Ellen says, you know, something might have happened. We don't know if it was sexual intercourse. There's a possibility she was drugged. So that's a whole thing. But the doctor, he fires, when you say he fires Thomas Pound, he gets Thomas a new job, right? He tries to get him to sign an affidavit. He isn't signing anything. But he sends him away. He buys him a new suit and gets him a job somewhere else. Now, if someone had done something that was, you know, you know, nefarious, one might assume that you'd be annoyed and you would not buy them gifts and provide them with employment. So over the period of time that Thomas was working there, the doctor had alluded, suggested even, that he could do what he wanted with his wife. Mm-hmm. You heard me. So... The wife says they were intimate, but doesn't explain how much. It could have just been a kiss. It could have been nothing. But the doctor is incensed and he calls in another doctor to check on her. So over this time, several doctors actually come in anyway. So he gets them to sort of check on her and the servants are told that whatever these other doctors, you know, say that she has to have, they make sure she gets it. So for the majority of the time, this woman is surviving on salted meat and brown bread. Which, again, if you have a bowel issue, not fucking good for you. And bear in mind as well, for the majority of this time, he is trying to get with her niece. So, the doctors would prescribe stuff for her and... um, they would make her wine at night and they would give her food and the servants would give it to her and so she would get to a recent or a decent sort of level of health and then the doctors would go and then her health would decline again. Now, the maid said that Ellen would make her taste her tea in the morning before she would drink it because she was convinced she was being poisoned by Dr Langley. So Dr Langley made a point of never um, never making food or drinks for her except for that one cup of tea in the morning. He made sure that everybody saw that he was not making her anything or touching anything with his own hands. Almost as if he's trying to create sort of some plausible deniability there. At one point, he talks about how um, a woman had thrown herself out the window 
or fallen out the window suspiciously and broken like the back of her head open on when she fell to the ground. And he tells Ellen that she needs to go to a higher point because if she throws herself out the window here, all that's going to happen is she's going to hurt herself and she won't die. So she better make sure she goes somewhere high enough before she jumps, right? It gets to the point where Ellen is so paranoid that the servants are putting quilts over the one window in the house or in her room to make sure she doesn't jump from it. And at night, the doctor is bolting himself into his room to kind of go, oh, well, um, yep, yep. I, I want to make sure that, you know, if anything happens to her because she's cray-cray, uh, that nobody points the finger at me, you can attest I was bolted in my room, blah, blah, right? It's almost as if he's trying to build a body of evidence. Mm? Mm. So anyway... Ellen is not well and there's another cholera outbreak. And so out goes Dr. Langley and he goes to one of his one of his workers, his fellow who works in the as we finance business, his money shark. Loan shark? Money loan loan shark. Yeah. So he tells him to find the cheapest, cheapest lodging possible, right? For someone. And he's like, all right. And it's only that night that he realises that it's for Ellen Poe. And he says, if I'd known it was for her, I would not have put her here. Like, this place is dodgy. It is the cheapest place. It was like a shilling to stay. And it was damp and cramped. And there was no real air. It was an awful, awful place. And the maid has to help her move. Because the doctor just kicks her out the house. And he sends her, his ill wife, to this place, this, this, this lodging. And her health just gets worse and worse. And the other doctors, they visit her. And they comment that, you know, she's given an abundance of food because he sends money for food. Well... He says he sends money for food. He says that he sends money for her lodgings. And then food is provided for her. But the food is brought by other people. He doesn't touch the food, right? And it's brown bread and salted beef. Like, this is a woman who's having bowel issues. Like, consistent problems in her gut and... He is forcing her to consume food that's difficult for her to eat, that's going to cause her problems, that's going to exacerbate her condition. Like, he's doing this deliberately. He's a doctor. He fucking knows. And I, oh, oh my God, I almost forgot. While Ellen was living in the house, the only companion she had for a long time was her dog. A dog that Dr. Charles Langley poisons fun fact so yeah she's lost her dog she's lost her home and she's put out into this thing and she's staying there her health worsens and she is convinced that she's being poisoned and she is there for weeks and weeks 
and the doctor offers her £30 a year and a divorce. And she contacts her family and her family go, no, no, you need double that. And so she says, no, I need double this if you want to divorce me. But in order for her to retain any assets, her lawyer suggests that she return to the home because she left when he told her to. Whereas unless she is physically removed from the home, she can't fight him. And so Ellen goes, fuck this for a game of soldiers. Even though she's ill, even though she's in pain, even though she's struggling, mentally, physically, even though going back into a place that caused her so much terror, she does the bravest thing possible and heads back into that house of horrors. So when she gets there, it's just the new maid that's there. The old maid had since resigned because after Ellen went, she was like, nope. She did try in this wee place that Ellen was staying in. She was trying to like secure her like an extra blanket or an extra anything. And the dude straight up refused. He refused to send anything that would be of benefit to her, right? And when Ellen returns to the house, Dr Langley isn't there because he's gone to collect his sister. So he collects his sister from her home and he has, at this point, written yet another letter to Annie, trying to get her to reconcile. And he brings his sister back with him, back home, to run his household for a little while because he is, you know, without a wife. And he and his sister are fucking shocked to see Ellen home. She's saying that she's sore and she needs somewhere to stay and she's not well. And Dr Charles Langley ends up writing a letter to Nixon, the brother-in-law, Mary Ann's husband, basically saying, ha, fuck this, nope. Oh, she thinks she can play me? I know what you're up to. I know what they're up to, sorry. And he removes his offer of £30 a year to 21 like he just keeps reducing it because he's a cunt right and he ends up sending her up to the garret back into that room again and she's there for a week just about and over the next few days the doctors visit and she is not well like things are going bad and It gets to the point that I think it's a week or two weeks after her returning home Ellen passes away on the 1st of May 1849 and it's after this that a letter arrives at the sub-inspector's office so the way the police, there wasn't like a a regimented police force, there was like sort of these sub-inspectors who were there on behalf of the Crown, and a lot of inquests and stuff they were run by, like committees, people were elected and stuff like that. But this letter comes in stating that, you know, people are going to be suspicious, so I'm going to need you to um, just have an inquest into my wife's death. And this letter arrives... But as it turns out, it was written three days before the untimely demise of Ellen Poe. 
Why would someone write a thing about an inquest a few days before his wife dies? About his wife dying. I'm not saying it's suspicious, but you know. Mm. But also, James Jocelyn Poe, the son of the Reverend Poe, and the nephew of Ellen, physically goes to the sub-inspector and requests an inquest because he is convinced his aunt had been poisoned. And so on the 1st of May 1849, just five and a half hours after Ellen has passed away, the coroner, the police sub-inspector, and a group of, well, tradesmen, merchants, salesmen, they all show up at Dr Langley's house on Barrack Street to start a, um, an inquest. So they show up and they collect like a number of witnesses, right? An autopsy gets performed, there's a number of witnesses, and then eh, a few of them just haven't shown up yet, so it gets adjourned to the following day. So from the Monday, it gets moved to the Tuesday. But this time, instead of being in Langley's house, it is at the schoolhouse. So it's a wee Protestant schoolhouse, it's full of teeny tiny chairs, and it's now full of big men. So the inquest occurs, and the doctors bring forth their evidence, and they're like, yeah, um, it is our opinion that, that Ellen died of a bowel complaint, basically dysentery, English cholera, as they called it. So they're saying that she died of dysentery. Um, and the medical witnesses come forward, but one of the doctors is not trusted by many members of the jury. And the weird thing about this jury is that the majority of them are actually Catholic. There's a few Protestant fellows there, but it's very weird, you know, to have this many Catholics, like, in charge of something. And the solicitor for, yeah, the, the prosecution, he is, well, he's, he's the son of a pharmacist, so he knows chemistry very well. And that's going to come in, it's going to come in useful. So this jury is made up of like tradesmen and whatever, like butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, cobblers, the whole shebang, right? And they are unhappy because they have not been happy with the Nina Perlaw guardians who just keep fucking shit up on the workhouse. Like people are dying and they're not being cared for appropriately. So like when one of the doctors says, well, she had enough to eat and, uh, Oh yeah, no, what was it? It's like, Ellen had sufficient to eat. And one of the jurors, like, pipes up, yeah, there's sufficient to eat in the workhouse too. Because, like, people were dying of malnutrition in the workhouse, right? And, for the record, what people would earn in the workhouse for, well, the work was more than Ellen was receiving when she was out in the shack by the doctor, right? So he was giving her less money to survive on than someone who was in the workhouse. That's not great. So all the doctors, they agree that she died of a bowel complaint, of dysentery, yada yada. And the jury's like, okay, but what led to this? And they just keep questioning and arguing. And so James Jocelyn Poe, the reverend son, he's like, well, if the doctors say it's fine, then it's fine. 
And Dr. Langley says, well, clearly the doctors have cleared me of any wrongdoing, so it's fine. And the jury's like, mm, but what about the other witnesses? And they're like, oh, we don't have any other witnesses because we didn't think we'd need them now. And the jury's like, well, we had to stop our work yesterday and we couldn't go to work today. And now you're saying you don't have the witnesses that you said you were going to have? No. So this argument goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it comes out that Ellen was convinced she was being poisoned. And other people had suspicions of it too. And so they're all talking about the mistreatment of her and everything that happened up until this point. And these local men, because they're all men, right? They're looking for justice for this woman. But also because of Anna's relationship with Charles. Uh, that's that's James Jocelyn's sister. And because of, well, you know, the possibility of, of the rumour that, that you know, Ellen had gone and been shagging about and was of ill repute. They didn't want this getting out. They didn't want the town folk hearing. Like, these were all respectable, like, men who held decent positions, who had decent earnings. They didn't want shit being messed around. They didn't want scandal, right? But scandal was coming for them anyway, because these fellas were not letting go. They were like a dog with a bone, right? But yeah, um, the pose, they don't want to do it. Like, nobody wants to take this case, and they go, well, if anybody wants to, it's going to have to be on, like, the Crown. The Crown's going to have to try this case, because it's not going to be us, right? And, and the jury's like, well, we are not going to give a verdict until we've heard all the evidence. And Langley's like, I don't want you listening to rumours and whatnot. And it's adjourned until Saturday. Now, on the Wednesday morning, right, the Wednesday morning, a group of women show up outside of Dr. Langley's house. And they start throwing rocks and stones and whatever other fucking shit they can at it. Like, this, not young women, like old ladies, like we biddies are just chucking shit at his house, right? And to the point where this crowd is trying to, is trying to like, make them open the door and the new maid is um, refusing to open the door because the doctor's told her not to open it and it's only when they threaten to break the door down that they that she allows them in you see normally when somebody passes away like in this era you're supposed to like have them shrouded in sort of white linens and you know, it, it's supposed to be very respectful and it's supposed to, there's supposed to be reverence for the dead, right? You're supposed to give a shit. Ellen Poe is put in a pauper's coffin. It is like the cheapest of the cheap. I think it's a, um, like a two and halfpenny or two and tenpenny. Like it's, it's very cheap. It is, it is what people from the poor house be buried in, right? The cheapest coffin available. And she was there in her chemise, in her nightdress. She had not been dressed for burial. She had not been shrouded appropriately. And the coffin, which there should have been a wake, right? So an Irish wake, the, the, the body is laid in the parlour 
and people come and pay respects and they celebrate the life of the person. That is just how it is. But instead, Dr Langley had her put outside in the garden and a carriage hood thrown over her. And Ellen, when she is buried, when she is taken from the house that day, and she's buried in the very graveyard of the church where her brother-in-law would do his sermons, where she would sit every single week and listen to his sermons. And they didn't mark her grave. They didn't put up a headstone. They did nothing for this woman. They just acted like she wasn't there. As if she was the one who brought shame. As if she was the issue. When a man deliberately and actively destroyed her life to the point where it ended. But yes, this trail reconvenes for Saturday. And on Saturday when, you know, the trail is back on and the Crown has the jury... The witnesses are coming and the solicitor, the one who was the, the chemist's son, he is no longer being retained by Reverend Poe and James Jocelyn Poe, but instead closer relatives. We're never told who these closer relatives are, but they've got to be our sisters, right? So as it turns out, the day after the inquest, Nixon, Marianne's husband, he dies and a letter arrives for him. A letter written by Charles Langley. And so Marianne has the evidence she needs to show what he was planning. That he was trying to do her out. Where he was just, like, he's so vicious in this letter. I'm not going to repeat it because it's so fucking awful. And she just sends that in. And this is added to the evidence. And over this time, Evidence come, they hear from the servants, they hear from the doctors, they hear from everybody. And this solicitor, he questions the doctors and he asks them, well, if someone were to use prussic acid, like the doctor was known to, which is cyanide, it's cyanide, right? And he says, would it not be difficult to, you know, ascertain if someone had been poisoned with this? Because, and they're like, well, you can test it. We can still send a sample off and test it. And he's like, yeah, but you can't though, because it's gone. Like any any manner in which to test it, you'd have to do straight away. And one of the other doctors actually steps up and goes, well, yeah, actually, now that you mention it, her autopsy was eight hours after she died. Ergo, even if we could have tested for it, like there is no, there's no way we could have because it was too long after the fact. Like wouldn't have been able to do it, right? And all this goes back and forth. And one person, as it turns out, is missing from the little schoolhouse courtroom. Dr. Charles Langley. They ask where he is. His sister says, he's at home. His lawyer's like, no, he's at home, he's at home, he's definitely at home. Um, spoiler alert, he's not. He has disappeared, right? So the jury, they're talking, they're like, this is fucking suspicious. And so... They charge Dr. Langley with manslaughter. And at this point, Langley's on the run, right? So he's on the run and he is eventually caught 
a few weeks later in Dublin. And after this, he ends up, um, he pays his bail, right? He goes into jail, um, Newgate, I think, and then ends up, it's a Newgate? He ends up in some jail anyway, pays his bail, and then goes to Nina and surrenders himself, right? And he's in trial, he's waiting for the assizes, right? And the day before he's due to go into the assizes and be tried, along with like a bunch of other people for a bunch of other stuff, because like, the charge has changed from manslaughter to murder, because manslaughter shows a disregard for life, right? And murder shows intent, okay? And so he goes before the court and it's basically, his lawyer goes, yeah, no, um, we don't, we're not prepared for this because it was changed so quickly. We're going to have to like delay and so he ends up being in jail for another year while they, you know, get everything together and need to do a new trial because everything was changed last minute. Because, you know, now the death penalty is, you know, very much on the cards. It's a possibility for him. And they're, and they're trying to, like, figure this out. And he decides that he's going to show, he's going to show the world that he's really innocent, right? And he copies, or he tries to copy... <laughs> Uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, right? So he, he decides to go on hunger strike. And he, and he's like, I'm hung, striking for 40 days and 40 nights. I'm 40 days striking. Um, because I am innocent like um, Edmond Dante and, you know, Count of Monte Cristo. Which he read like six months before going to jail. <laughs> and uh, it's so ridiculous. And so he goes on that. But he gets an interview with this reporter and this reporter just basically says, yeah, he was mad at the jailers and didn't like it. So he went on uh, a fast for 38 days. So not only, like this, I love that it's completely undermines Langley because not only does it um, sort of wish wash away the whole Dumas situation uh, and uh, it also like reduces the christian symbolism by it because like 40 days it's like jesus 38 days is not quite jesus you know yeah so yeah yeah not not there yet and um it gets to that point right the langley is just mad about it (laughs) it's so petty he's like ruin my stuff but he ends up eventually going to going to court and while he's there, all this stuff comes back up. They go through it all again. But then a letter appears. Which is the letter. The long, rambling letter. From like the 28th of December, 1848. That he wrote to Anne. About how much he loved her and wanted to be with her and all that jazz. Because she cannot in good conscience allow this to go ahead. Because she needs everyone to know that her aunt deserves some kind of justice right she has you know got a case of the conscience and so this goes before this court and this jury who as opposed to like the local jury where who are mainly um catholic this is you know the protestant elite you know and they look over the evidence and they decide that he is not guilty of murder I mean they didn't try him for manslaughter which I think they very well could have done but they decided nope not guilty and that very night Dr Langley goes with his friends gets 
absolutely sloshed, has a massive party, and then disappears. But not like taken care of or anything. He just jumps ship and moves to Liverpool. But who does he move with? Anne Poe, Annie Poe, Nanny, his 30-something-year-old niece-ish. They move to Liverpool. They get married. They they don't mention their father they're like ish related because the law, the niece, sister-in-law thing doesn't go through. So clearly in order for them to marry, they have to sort of just not mention it, just omit that piece of evidence, you know. So clearly her conscience eased a wee bit since, you know, the man who destroyed her aunt's life and like why why would you marry someone who did such horrible things like would you not think maybe he might do that to you oh well i mean that's what the manipulators do isn't it well i'd never do that to you you matter to me you're important and um yeah so so that's they get married they have kids and yeah would either one of them could stay and Nina and Tipperary anymore because there was just too much scandal and like I wouldn't have even have mentioned like what happened after you know the not guilty thing I I would have just like done a passing word about the trial but I am so enraged for Ellen like betrayed by her fucking family at this point because of this a woman who was left to be the property of her husband and was systematically abused by him, destroyed by him, quite probably poisoned by him, but him just being sneaky enough to just get around it. And fucking Ellen deserves justice. And it pisses me off that he got to go and live the life he wanted. Well, she is fucking food for worms. And so ends the story of Ellen Poe, who, I don't know, I hope got some tiny speck of justice from this. And if she exists, if her story can be found out and can be known, generally when we have one thing like this, it means that there were more incidents of situations like this. Like this is, Jesus Christ, this is fucking Jane Eyre. It's the wife in the attic, isn't it? Isn't it? Like that's that's that also maybe a racist thing if you read the book, just as a just a thing. But yeah, if um if you liked my retelling of this story, of this tale, this horrible tale, um please rate and review five stars. Again, I'm sorry for my voice. Um you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Is it Twitter? X, I guess. Uh I'm not on threads yet, but once threads becomes like like a website, I should be able to go on it. But while it's an app, I don't have access because Irish law. Um, you can always support the podcast uh, by like sharing, sharing especially, writing reviews, all that kind of stuff. And like, um, there's also financial support if you want to like donate to the tip jar. That's always helpful. Um, keeps me keeps me up with my subscriptions at the old newspapers and Advil from dealing with trolls. And yeah, I guess it's 
recommendation time for reading. I'm going to recommend The Doctor's Wife is Dead by Andrew Tierney. It's so good. It's so good. Like, I'm tempted to like do it as one of the hooded, um, whodunit whatnows, even though if you've listened to this, you've heard it. But you might like me reading it in my pyjamas on camera. <laughs> it tends to be me in my pyjamas reading the stuff. Um, on top of that, we have for listening. Let me see now for listening. I'm going to recommend my girls, Murder Most Irish, if you like true crime, that's Irish. And they're very victim first, they're considerate, they're not arseholes, they're absolutely amazing, go listen to them. And for watching, Bad Sisters, it's, it's, it's so good, it's so, it's so, it's so good, it's so good, go watch it. And yeah, that is everything for today, I hope you have an amazing evening, or morning, or just day. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Bye-bye.